This podcast assumes that you have a general knowledge of the Tate LaBianca murders. Sharon Tate Polanski, Jay Sebring, Wojciech Frykowski, Abigail Folger, and Stephen Parent were murdered on Cielo Drive in Los Angeles on August 9, 1969. Lino and Rosemary LaBianca were slain in their Los Feliz residence the following night. Charles Manson, Charles Watson, Susan Atkins, Patricia Quinwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten were convicted of those murders. Say hello to the Goodbye Helter Skelter podcast. Hi, I'm George Simpson. Welcome to the Goodbye Helter Skelter podcast, episode 12, wherein I continue my series of reviews of some of the other books besides my own, which have been written about Charles Manson and the Tate-LaBianca murders. Here, I'm going to look at Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s by Tom O'Neill and Dan Pipenbring. I actually had read Chaos before working on this review because it got so much attention that people kept asking me about it, wanting to know what I thought. So, why not read it? And, I thought the first part of the book was kind of interesting, as O'Neill recounts his early investigative efforts. Many of us have been on that same road. But it's not long before he totally torpedoes his own book. Early on, on page 41, he writes, in reference to testimony during the murder trial as to whether Manson might have used LSD to alter the perceptions of his so-called family so much that they wouldn't have a negative reaction to committing murder, what no one brought up was how someone like Manson, with little formal education and so much prison time under his belt, had mastered the ability to control people this way. Whether you thought it was brainwashing or merely intense coercion, the fact remained, he'd done it. No one else had. This remains the most enduring mystery of the case. It's the one thing that still keeps me up at night. You can go to bed, Tom, because your enduring mystery never happened. Charles Manson did not use LSD to program his followers to kill without remorse. In fact, they weren't programmed at all. They did what they did willingly in order to protect their group, and they were willing to commit murder because they believed that Charles Manson had already killed for them when he shot Bernard Crow. Despite this already fatal flaw in the book's premise, I decided to read on. And in doing so, I actually managed to find some very important information. O'Neill makes much of the likelihood that Terry Melcher was perhaps better acquainted with Charles Manson and Charles Watson than was alluded to in Helter Skelter. But none of this is surprising to anyone who has read the transcripts of the murder trials. In his murder trial, Charles Watson testified that he went to the house at 1050 Cielo Drive in August of 1968 to borrow Melcher's car and credit card for a trip north of San Francisco with Dean Morehouse. And in that same trial, Terry Melcher testified that Charles Watson had been to his residence at least five or six times, including the occasion to borrow his car and credit card, and that he might have even lived there briefly when he, Melcher, was out of town. He also said that Watson might have been present the two times he visited Spahn's ranch to listen to Manson and his friends sing. 
Beyond that, there was the famous trip to the Whiskey A Go-Go with Manson, Dennis, Wilson, and Greg Jacobson. And not to mention that Manson himself testified at the trial that he had been to Melcher's house five or six times, but never inside. So clearly, there were considerable relationships between Terry Melcher, Charles Watson, and Charles Manson. But those relationships were not suppressed during the murder trials, as O'Neill implies. That Melcher would want to soft-pedal his relationship with Manson and Watson, however, is understandable, if not honorable. In any case, the number of times that Melcher, Watson, and Manson interacted has no bearing on the case as presented here. The only relevance to any Melcher-Watson relationship is that, as a result of it, Charles Watson knew where Terry Melcher's house was. But the most interesting and the most very important part of Terry Melcher's testimony during the Charles Watson murder trial was when he recalled his visit to Spahn's ranch on May 18, 1969, to listen to Charles Manson and his friends make music. This is a pivotal incident in the Tate-LaBianca saga, for it was at this ranch visit that Melcher's lack of enthusiasm for Manson's music seemingly dashed Manson's obsessive dream of being a show business superstar. But if Manson's dreams of becoming a recording star ended during this audition, was it really because Melcher just wasn't impressed enough with Manson's music that he wanted to record him? Remember, Melcher's taste in successful music ran to clown groups like Paul Revere and the Raiders and the safely psychedelic birds. So, as a purveyor of such commercially safe acts, it's not really surprising that he wouldn't be interested in handling Manson's distinct, innovative, and real musical material. But besides having a different taste in music, there was another reason why Terry Melcher wouldn't give a contract to Charles Manson. What's really interesting and important about the May 18th ranch audition was Melcher's recollection at Charles Watson's murder trial that after the audition, he spoke a bit with Manson and discovered that Manson was not a member of either the AFM, the American Federation of Musicians Union, or the AFTRA, the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists Union. Melcher told Manson that he couldn't record in a studio unless he was a member of both of these unions. And Manson replied to Melcher that he wasn't going to join any unions. So let that sink in. Here is Charles Manson, who was supposedly so obsessed with becoming a recording star that he would later order a mass murder partially because of being rejected by the entertainment industry, instead, in reality, rejecting that very industry by his refusal to abide by their strict and constraining rules, even by the simple expediency of joining a couple of unions. In other words, this testimony of Melcher's is proof of what Charles Manson always maintained. The entertainment industry didn't reject him. He rejected it. And here again is an example of why you should read as many transcripts of the trials related to the Tate-LaBianca, Hinman-Shea cases as you can if you want to get the best possible picture of the events surrounding those nine murders. Those transcripts are full of gems that contradict the accepted narrative of the crimes. This remark of Terry Melcher, added almost as an afterthought in his testimony, gives total lie to the generally accepted fantasy 
that Charles Manson was obsessed with becoming a success in the show business industry. And thus is yet another lie about Charles Manson demonstrated as such. So, if you ever hear anybody say that Charles Manson was insanely driven to be an entertainment superstar, stop listening to that person and never listen to them again. Chaos is an aptly named book because it really is a chaotic mess. O'Neill starts with a faulty premise, namely that Charles Manson used LSD to brainwash his followers into committing remorseless mass murder for him. Then he spends almost 400 pages trying to figure out how Manson did something that he didn't do. This pointless attempt takes the reader from shadowy CIA operatives to LSD mind control experiments to Hollywood in the late 1960s to the JFK assassination to Vincent Bugliosi's closet full of dirty laundry. O'Neill goes to a lot of places without really going anywhere. He interviews people about things that happened 50 years earlier. And he accepts any discrepancy in what a person says today as opposed to what has been believed for 50 years as being the real truth. He rarely takes into consideration that his subjects might be mistaken, fabricating, lying, trying to get attention, or just plain crazy. He cites a possible CIA operative who supposedly called Sharon Tate's photographer from the murder scene an hour and a half before Winifred Chapman discovered the bodies. Okay, I don't care what Sharo Katami says. That didn't happen. The guy wasn't there. And who was this guy? He was a shadowy figure with possible ties to the CIA, a mystery man who gave friends the impression that he did secret work for the government. In other words, he was a con man. I've accurately been described as a hermit, but even I can think of at least three people I've known who supposedly worked for the CIA. One I know now. Another installed the internet system at my old house. But the third was the real kicker. He lived in Trona, California and associated with TJ and Lori Wallman and Cappy Gillies when I visited them there in the 1990s. Now, you might say, gee, George, it sounds like the CIA is watching you, except that they're not. The psychiatric designation for a person who falsely claims to be a member of an intelligence organization is that they have a delusional disorder, specifically a delusion of grandeur or a false belief of identity and importance. These people are fantasists. Other supposed CIA personnel are simply con men. And there are a lot of them around. They're common. Fantasists and con men. And likely, the mysterious characters encountered by Tom O'Neill were of the same ilk. But besides, even if O'Neill's LSD mind control hypotheses and the CIA scenarios are true, none of them apply to Charles Manson because Manson didn't use LSD to program anybody to do anything. So there's no point in trying to figure out how Manson did something that he didn't do. A reasonable and believable set of circumstances surrounding the Tate-LaBianca murders has been explained in this podcast in depth. All other attempted explanations for those murders have relied on illogic, misinformation, uncorroborated statements, and a willingness to believe that coincidence is conspiracy. Chaos was a New York Times bestseller, which, as I explained in the last podcast, simply means that the book sold 5,000 copies within a week. 
But other than interest shown in the book by internet channels and a mention in Rolling Stone magazine, the mainstream media pretty much ignored it, realizing that it was a pointless exercise. But then, through a friend, O'Neill landed a gig on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. That's when the book got well enough known that people started to think that there might be something to it. But there isn't. O'Neill buys into a stillborn premise and then goes on a decades-long slog through disparate territories. Finally, but not surprisingly, since he's chasing a mirage of a Manson, he cannot come to any conclusion. My conclusion is that chaos, as presented, is a waste of time. I'm very glad that it piqued my curiosity enough that I discovered proof of Charles Manson's lack of interest in being part of the Hollywood music industry. But otherwise, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone trying to get a better understanding of Charles Manson. To do that, you would be much better off looking at a tree. This has been the Goodbye Helter Skelter podcast, the podcast dedicated to the truth about the Tate-LaBianca murders, Charles Manson, and more. The views expressed on this program are solely those of the individual speakers, and they do not necessarily represent the thoughts, ideas, or opinions of any other persons, either living or dead. Visit our companion website at www.